From war across the globe to regulating speech to printing trillions of dollars, the American regime accepts no limits on its power. As Ludwig von Mises understood, the state will take as much power as the people will let it. And in recent years, the American regime has clearly concluded it can get away with unilaterally adopting vast new powers. Join Michael Rechtenwald, Ted Galen Carpenter, Jonathan Newman, and more for a Mises Institute event in Nashville, Tennessee on September 23rd, dedicated to this siege of power and one of Ron Paul's favorite lines, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Tickets begin at $95. Get yours at Mises.org slash Nashville 23. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash Nashville 23. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everyone, to the Human Action Podcast. Uh, I'm going to go solo this week. I thought what would be good is for me to walk through Warren Mosler has a, an interview he recently did um, speaking about, from an MMT, Modern Monetary Theory perspective, what the ramifications are of uh, increased interest rates from the Federal Reserve. So the conventional view is that, uh uh-oh, the Fed's hiking rates in an effort to fight inflation, and yep, that's bringing inflation down, by which they mean, of course, increases in the consumer price index. But, uh, you know, the downside is that that might tip us into recession, right? So that's the way conventional economists and the financial press talk about it. And Mosler's take is entirely different, as we'll see. Just to give you a little hint, He's saying that rising interest rates are expansionary, that that's actually giving juice to the economy, but it's also fueling price inflation. He, he just says inflation because but for him, inflation means rising prices. All right. And, and the logic is, again, just to not leave you <laughs> dangling on the edge of your seat. How can this be? What does he mean? The logic is from an MMT perspective because they think government deficit spending, other things equal, is adding – wealth to the private sector and that helps the private sector grow it, it fuels spending if the government's you know spending more than it's taxing out of the economy that's like adding money if you want to think of it that way just very simplistically and so that's what allows the private sector to get its hands on more wealth and money to be able to go out and spend and that's what drives economic growth and conversely when the government runs budget surpluses in a sense that's sucking resources financial resources out of the private sector on net. And so you would expect the economy to stall in a situation like that, right? So that's the kind of the MMT logic. So if you buy that, then Mosler's point is pretty simple, saying, well, when the Fed raises interest rates, given how much outstanding federal debt there is right now held by the private sector, then that means um, it's a higher volume of interest payments now. And so that's a huge injection of extra income from the federal government into the private sector. And so that's why, for example, unemployment is still very low, even though regular mainstream economists think that, you know, the Fed's been hiking rates for a while now, and you would have thought we'd be in a bad recession. But no, we're not. Unemployment's still low. And Moser thinks that's because the, the, you know, the Fed plus Federal Reserve System viewed collectively is injecting all this extra income into the economy now. And that's also what's fueling 
inflation. Okay, so that's his view. So I thought it would be useful to go ahead and, and walk through that. Let me also just mention sort of as a caveat that some people are giving me pushback and saying, and I even took this Moser interview that we're going to go through here in a minute, folks, and I ran it by another economist saying, hey, I'm curious about your take on that. And he his point, I won't say his name because he didn't give me permission to, but he was saying, no, I'm, I'm, I've written enough on MMT. I'm not talking about these guys aren't worth even arguing with. And I disagree with that take that I think all the more so like for me uh, in my role is, you know, sort of bringing the perspective of, of an Austrian economics framework to the public, uh, especially vis-a-vis other economists and, and how they're you know arguing about public, so-called public policy, that uh, MMT right now to me is a bigger threat to economic liberty, if you want to talk like that, than Keynesianism is. That just I see it on social media. I think the MMTers are a rising force to be dealt with, grappled with intellectually, and that the the Keynesians, um, their day is has eclipsed somewhat. Um, put it to you this way, for all the reasons that the progressive left would have liked Paul Krugman more than they would have liked Bob Murphy, <laughs> they're going to – they like Stephanie Kelton, who's a big – you know, here on the MMT world more than I like Paul Krugman. Okay. And, um, and it's not merely because, oh, the MMTers give even more justification for running the printing press or for the government to, you know, crank out even more red ink that that is true. And that helps to explain, you know, the popularity, but that's not all that the MMT people do is we'll see with this Mosler interview and I've uh, done a you know a review of Stephanie Kelton's latest book that I can understand why someone who at least is predisposed to want their conclusions to be true can think that the MMT framework really is refreshing and novel and intellectually consistent and and so forth that th- their analysis of things it, it it's unsettling at first and completely unorthodox but it's not obvious what's wrong with it, right? It's, it's sort of, whoa, that's, that's, that's a weird way of looking at things. And, and so instead of just saying, ah, oh, these guys are nuts, I think it really does uh, require somebody, and it might as well be me, to go through periodically and point out what the, what the problems are with this. So that's partly the function of this episode. For those of you out there in the trenches arguing from an Austrian point of view against MMTers, I want to give you some, uh, some ammunition, if you will. Intellectual, of course. Okay, so let's go ahead and play the first clip from Mosler in this recent interview. Let me also just say, I don't know who this guy is that's interviewing him or what the show is, but the guy interviewing Mosler, I I liked a lot. That At several points in in this episode right now of the Human Action Podcast, I may not even play the clips, the the portions that I have in mind, and I'm certainly not going to shine a spotlight on them, but there's several points at which this host asking questions – I think did a good job where where he's saying, uh, you know, the MMT people used to say this, but then the more I thought about it, isn't this kind of an issue? And then he lets Mosler go to town and he doesn't really challenge him. But the things that this guy was putting his finger on as far as isn't this a problem from the MMT perspective, I agreed with wholeheartedly. And like in some of the same things I raised in my review of Kelton, for example. So anyway, my uh, um, kudos to this host, even though he's very friendly with Mosler. I, I think he did a good job of 
you know, bringing apparent problems to Mosler's attention to say, what, what would an MMT person say about this? Also, one final caveat is Mosler himself, in case you don't know, I debated him in Columbia years ago. John Carney was the host. Um, and uh, he's very charming. Okay. Like just in terms of talking to the guy one on one before we went to the debate, you know, I was just chit chatting with him. And I actually kind of had to pull back. I was like, whoa, whoa, this guy. <laughs> He's buttering me up before we're about to go debate, and I, I don't want to like him too much because he, you know, I got to go sit here and tell everyone, a crowd of people, why I think this guy's wrong. So anyway, none of this should be construed as you know me saying, "Oh, this guy's a nut job. He's crazy." And he's also he's very glib and very intelligent. So again, I'm I'm stressing, I think MMT is totally wrong and very bad, and I'm lamenting its growing popularity because I think it's leading the public to support policies that are disastrous, but. Having said all that, like I understand partly why it's happening is because Mosler and then Stephanie Kelton also, she's not stupid. Um, and so they're very glib and I can understand why these views are seductive. Okay, so for this first clip, the host is asking Mosler about the actual mechanics of government spending. And so let's go ahead and play this excerpt. Right. And so let's take this example. Uh, the Treasury is going to buy a plane and send it to Ukraine. Let's just say the plane costs a billion dollars or a series of planes cost a billion dollars from, from Boeing. The Treasury has an account with the Federal Reserve, uh, the Treasury General Account, TGA. When the Treasury sends the money to Boeing, it instructs the Fed to credit a billion dollars to Boeing. And uh, Well, not exactly. It, okay. Boeing will have a commercial bank. Let's say J.P. Morgan. I think they're the only bank left, right? <laughs> so the Treasury will say debit the Treasury's account at the Fed and credit the account of J.P. Morgan for further credit to its its client, its depositor, Boeing. And the Fed will do that. So they'll reduce the number in the Treasury's account. They'll change it down and they'll change the number in J.P. Morgan's account to a higher number. And then and what is the order? Which the debit occurs first or the credit occurs first or simultaneous? Uh, you know, they're accounted for at the same time in this case. Okay. okay. And, uh, and then JP Morgan will change the, uh, Boeing's account on its books. It, it'll change the number in Boeing's account up a billion. And so JP Morgan now has an asset, the billion dollars in its account at the Fed and it has a liability, which is the, checking account of Boeing, which now has a billion dollars in it of that's a JP Morgan liability. And so everybody's in balance and they wait for the next instructions. Right. And the, the reason I asked about which happens first is the, the whole, uh, yeah. So let's look at let's, borrow let's, versus borrow tax spend. Yeah. Right, right, right. So, um, what MMT started off pointing out way back when I first started, and this was three years before I introduced it to the academic community, so in the early 1990s, is that the funds to pay taxes and the funds to buy bonds come from the government. They come from the Federal Reserve, an agent of the government. They do not come from the private sector. Now, the at that point, pay taxes? Yes, and the funds to buy bonds, treasury bonds, or treasury, I call them securities because they're bills, notes, and bonds. People right, say right, bonds, yeah. but it's bills, yeah, notes, yeah. and bonds. So, uh, come only from the um, government itself through its agent, the Federal Reserve. So what we had was everyone in Congress and, you know, every legislature in the world, but everyone in Congress believing that they had to 
get the government, the treasury had to, the, the government itself had to get money into its account to be able to spend. Okay. If there was no money in the account, they could not spend. Okay. And they, what they couldn't get in the account through taxing, they had to go out and borrow. And if they couldn't borrow, if China didn't buy our bonds, then they couldn't spend the money. Okay. Well, close examination of the Fed, which is first thing Stephanie Kelton did before recognizing what's going on here. Cause she, she had the same impression after studying, uh, you know, getting her PhD and the whole thing. They all, all the academics did. They came to realize that when you look closely inside the Fed, they have to credit the accounts of the commercial of the uh, private sector, like JP Morgan's account. If, if Boeing needs to pay taxes or JP Morgan needs to pay taxes to the government and it has no money in its government account and its account at the Fed, its reserve account, mm-hmm. it has a bank account like you would have a bank account, but it's a client of the Federal Reserve Bank. If it doesn't have any money in there, if there are no dollars in its account, it can't pay its taxes. Right. The only way dollars can get in an account at the Federal Reserve is if the Federal Reserve credits that account. Okay, so what's interesting here is one of the bedrock claims of MMT, and apparently this is what got Stephanie Kelton writing under her name at the time was Bell. And so she's got a a publication under Stephanie Bell. Um, She apparently is. So the, the lore goes Stephanie Kelton or Bell at the time didn't believe in MMT. She thought that. Oh yeah, if the if the government is going to spend money on something, they need to first get the money from somewhere, right? They either through taxation or borrowing. And just like a you know a regular corporation or individual household, and then it was in her uh research and exploration into that issue that she had her mind changed and then from that point forward was a true believer in MMT and has now become, you know, one of its leading champions. So I'm here to say that, ironically, again, since like one of the standard talking points of the MMT folks when you're arguing with them online is they'll say, hey, this isn't ideological. We're not here, you know, as progressives or interventionists, uh, you know, whereas you Austrians are all libertarians. What a coincidence. We're just here telling you how the world works. Okay, like this, whether you like it or not, that's how the world works. It's not, we're not controlling it. We're not setting the rules. We're just telling you this is how it is. And to have a rational public discourse on issues about social security or funding a mission to Mars or whether we should have a single payer in healthcare, it's kind of crazy that everyone's talking as if the government needs to first have the money before it's allowed to spend when that's just not true. And and so, again, one of the ways, as we just heard in that clip, the MMT poll. MMT people try to get this point across to show this qualitative difference between when the U.S. Treasury pays for something versus anybody else, that, you know, the difference between a monetary sovereign versus a, a currency issuer versus a currency user, that the deal is, oh, when the U.S. Treasury buys something, you know, they just instruct the Federal Reserve to go do something. And guess what? No, that's just not true. Their description, if you read you know, listening to what Mosler just said, or you go read it in Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth, and I, I spell all this out if you want to see it in more detail, folks. Um, if for this Human Action Podcast episode, I'll, I'll have links, including my review of Kelton's book, uh, to where you can see this point fleshed out with footnotes and such. But it, it's not correct. If you just read how they describe government spending as working, you would not understand how it actually works in the real world. 
So specifically, it is not true that there's something special going on with how when the Treasury, if it wants to buy fighter jets, that, oh, it just instructs the Federal Reserve to go ahead and add some numbers to J.P. Morgan's balance with the Fed. And then J.P. Morgan, in turn, adds some numbers to, um, you know, uh, Boeing's numbers or Lockheed Martin, whoever the defense contractor is that we're talking about, with their numbers of their checking account balance with J.P. Morgan. And that's how it works. And say there's, it's not like there's a, a pile of numbers somewhere that has to shrink in order for the Fed to just change some numbers on J.P. Morgan's reserve balances with the Fed. And so, you know, doesn't this get it through your thick skull, folks, that the Treasury does not need to get the money from somewhere in order to be able to buy stuff, that there's a limitless amount of digits that the Fed can add to people's accounts? They're like the, the banker in Monopoly. Right, this is the the logic that you'll hear, and I'm here to tell you they are wrong. That is not how it works, or rather, that is how it works for the treasury, but it's also how it works for me. You know, if I go into the grocery store and I have a hundred dollars of groceries, guess how I get it? I take out my Bank of America card and I swipe it, or I put it in if it's got the chip reader. And I instruct Bank of America to add $100 to the grocery store's checking account balance. And that's that's how it works. It's moving digits around. And you might say, well, okay, but Bob, what if you don't have $100 in your own checking account? Then Bank of America is not going to follow your orders, right? Well, actually, they, that's not right. They will sometimes. I have had it happen where my checking account balance was overdrawn and I the, the account balance actually goes negative. It, it can't be negative $30,000, but it can be negative. Certainly, if it's under $100, they will go ahead and clear it, the, the, the charge. And, you know, that's, that doesn't happen a lot. I try not to make it happen, but, you know, it's happened over the years. I think there's enough money in there for something and I hit the ATM or I write a check or whatever and then, oops, I forgot. I had some automatic withdrawal previously programmed. I totally forgot about that. It hits on the 27th every month. Oops. And my account goes negative. And so, you know, you know how that works. And then you got to go fix it, obviously. And they charge you an overdraft fee and whatnot. But technically, I didn't have to have the money. I gave my orders to Bank of America. And even though I didn't have enough money, they went ahead and paid it. And so you might say, yeah, Bob, Bob the, you, the situation with the Treasury is different. You're right. It is different. You know Why? Because at least since 1981, it has been illegal. The Treasury doesn't have the same privileges of overdrafting that I do. That the Treasury is not legally allowed by Congress to tell the Federal Reserve to credit more dollars to various people's, uh, you know, checking accounts and then, you know, the, the, the banks with whom they bank and they're ultimately their reserve balances with the Fed. That whole story that Mosler just told that is not allowed to happen. The Federal Reserve is not legally allowed to obey those orders from the Treasury unless the Treasury has enough in its own account with the Fed such that in order to you know, add a billion dollars to some defense contractors checking account balance working through J.P. Morgan or whoever, that the Treasury first had to have a billion dollars in its account with the Fed. All right. And again, that's been the case at least since 1981. And even before then, there was mechanisms in place 
where very rarely the the Treasury was allowed to overdraft, as it were. But even in a lot of those cases, if we're going to get real technical about it, it wasn't so much that the U.S. government or the Treasury as a whole was overdrawn. It was that it had money in one type of account and then it had money in its general account. And the idea was occasionally, just out of convenience, if it overdrew on the general account but it had enough in the other account that the Fed was allowed to go ahead and you know let them dip below zero – knowing they were good for it because they had money in this account over here, like they was getting incoming tax payments or something. Okay, so th- that's the way things stood. Now, even there, way back like in World War II, there were some mechanisms in place where they, they could act literally the way that Kelton and Mosler described. But my point is legally they have – those mechanisms were all unwound and shut down as of 1981. And from that point forward – the Treasury is not allowed to behave in the way that the MMT people matter-of-factly tell you, oh, this is how government spending works. No, it isn't. So I've spent some time here hammering that point. Normally, I don't spend a lot of time on it because in the grand scheme, yeah, Congress could change the rules. And so I don't want to put a lot of weight on that because it really is just hanging on the decisions of Congress. There's nothing metaphysically stopping them from doing it. But by the same token – it's nothing against the laws of physics if Congress says next Thursday to the you know passing rules and saying ultimately to the Federal Reserve with changing the statute to story guidance. Anytime Robert Murphy writes a check, go ahead and clear it. That it's fine. He's good for it legally. Just go ahead and, and pay it. There's not you know the, the only thing stopping me from going out and buying fighter jets the way Mosler and Stephanie Kelton describe in their book is that it would be illegal to do so right now and it's not been authorized by Congress. But that's exactly what's true of the Treasury, right? So <laughs> it's, uh, there's, again, nothing magical about that. Okay. Let's now move on to another clip. This one has to do with Mosler's unorthodox take on what happened with the Volcker era. So for context here, um, the standard story is that, oh, the U.S. formally went off the gold standard, the last vestiges at least, in 1971. And then you saw price inflation really take off even during peacetime or some, certain people around the world would have thought the U.S. was at peace with them. But it, there wasn't a major war even going on um, throughout that. And yet we saw really bad price inflation. You had the stagflation of the 70s. And then Paul Volcker finally takes over at the Federal Reserve in the late 70s. And he jacks up interest rates to break the back of inflation, causes really bad recessions in the early 80s, but gets price inflation under control. It puts the inflation genie back in the bottle. And then central bankers around the world kind of learn their lesson that if you don't want to have to be a tough guy like Paul Volcker coming in and just basically knocking tables over in order to restore order, then just don't let inflation get out of hand. Don't let those inflationary expectations take root. Because otherwise, it's going to take some a tough guy like Volcker to come along and just, you know, take take a, the vodka out of the punch bowl kind of thing. So that's the standard story. And as we'll see now, Mosler has a completely different take on what happened in the late 70s and why did Volcker doing what he did um, ultimately or, – or we'll see. It wasn't so much what Volcker did. It was something else that caused – the recessions in the early 80s. So here we go. And that as we raise rates further, it's only going to support growth 
you know, you know, and employment. We're at a 50 year low for unemployment after raising rates for a year, you know, record number of basis points or whatever. Uh, and we're going to overheat if we keep raising rates like this. Uh, that's what the data is telling me. Okay. I'm one person. You know, it might be telling you something else, you know, but that's what it's telling me that these rates are direct increase in deficit spending one for one because they're 100% of GDP. So you raise rates 1%. Over time, you're raising the deficit by 1% of GDP for every 1% rates. Yes, there's a delay and there's reinvestment. I understand duration, but that's roughly what you're doing. And you keep doing this, <laughs> you will get, you, we raise rates from 5% to 15%. We're going to see the deficit go up to, from seven to six or eight, you know, to, I don't know, another 6% will be up to 12 or 13% of GDP, which is, I think is going to be highly inflationary if we raise rates that high, if we go full Volcker. Now, what did Paul Volcker do, who happens to be Jerome Powell's hero? Um, yeah, that was just my next question. So Volcker, you know, then you're familiar with the narrative. Yeah, yeah. Jacked interest rates to 18%, inflation dropped like rock, then yeah, rates fell exactly. down shortly, then he raised them back up and... Yeah, yeah. Why, how do you doubt that narrative? Because you're, you're absolutely yeah. right. You know, Zimbabwe, inflation, you know, um, yeah. uh, interest rates way above 100% and inflation is, you know, close to 1,000 Argentina. Down. But in d- developed market countries, right. typically, you know, higher interest rates uh, associated with causing recessions, yeah. causing deflation, causing right. a credit crunch. Right. Also, budget surpluses are cause a credit crunch. And you have to look at the budget deficit or surplus in real terms. Because people's savings are in real terms. You know, you, I used to walk around with $20 in my pocket. And I thought I had a lot of money when I was a kid. That, well, I didn't have 20 I had a dollar. It was a lot. You know, and, and now it's $200. If you go shopping and you need $200 and prices double, you need $400. If you're an Apple computer with $200 billion and prices double, you need $400 billion. So the, the savings needs, the cash needs, the net financial assets of pension funds, when prices double, it all doubles. So it, it, you got they look at it in real terms. How many, how many dollars do we have based on prices? You know, we've got to give an employee enough money to live off of when he retires. Okay. So what happens is you have to look at the public debt and then you look at how it changes from year to year. It goes up by the budget deficit, but it goes down because of inflation. People call it the inflation tax, right? And so when Volcker was around back then, the, the public debt, uh, the annual deficit was about six or seven percent of GDP in the late seventies, but inflation was 12 or more. And so we had the real public debt going down by six percent. All right. So we had a massive fiscal contraction going on. Uh, it was the first decline in the real public debt in a long time. And economists pointed it out at the time. And that is what caused the economy to crash. Okay. Along with what OPEC was doing with the price of oil, which caused a glut in Jimmy Carter's deregulation of that gas, a lot of people switch out of oil into gas. But that took a while. That didn't happen in one day. But there were, there were all kinds of factors uh, substituting out of $40 oil. Oil had gone from 3 to 40 Okay, It was up like 11 times, which is you know like going from 70 to 800 right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was a massive inflationary thing going through the economy. And that caused the real public debt to collapse. And we had one of the worst recessions we had, and, and the, they credited the interest rates on that. Now, the int- I credited the fiscal collapse because when I look back at every uh, recession, every economic cycle, there's always been that kind of fiscal contraction associated with every single time. And the interest rates 
were adding income, they were adding to the deficit, but not enough. Okay, with the inflation, you had what we used to call bracket creep. I don't know if we call it that today. But when your income doubles, your tax payments double and you go into a higher tax bracket. So we had this ripping inflation. So tax receipts were going up even faster than the government could spend money, even faster than the interest rates were causing the government to spend money. And the budget went into a real surplus where the inflation was higher than the deficit. And we had that collapse. It's a little bit technical, but it's, you know, I don't think there's any dispute when you look at it that that's what's happened. Now, somebody else could say, oh, I still think it was the interest rates. Well, that's fine. Like, you know, counterfactual is counterfactual. But it's my, my narrative is entirely consistent with what happened then. Okay, and there you have it. So, again, let me just explain why I think it's interesting to go through this stuff. Because the MMT people, this is not standard Keynesian economics, Right. That uh, Paul Krugman, for example, also has his sort of alternate history of what happened with the inflation in the 70s. And then, you know, how did things get better in the 80s? And he certainly is not a fan of free market economists. He's certainly not giving Ronald Reagan a clap on the back for his uh, supply side tax cuts and giving a shot in the arm of the U.S. economy. Certainly that's not coming from Paul Krugman. But the way. Mosler's explaining what happened. I don't think even Krugman says stuff like this. All right. So it's it's interesting if for no other reason than for you folks at home who are interested in economics, and you, <laughs> you should be if you're listening to this podcast. Otherwise, I don't know what you're doing. Um, it's it's useful just to think it through. All right. So to be clear, I think Mosler's totally wrong, but it's useful, I believe, for me to show you why I think he's wrong. Okay. So his theory, though, just to be fair to the guy, make sure you understand what he's saying, is that um, when the public holds government debt, from the point of view of the private sector, that's a net financial asset. All right, I'll come back to that in a second to make sure you know, but just go with me for a moment. In previous episodes of the Human Action Podcast, we've gone through this stuff, but I don't want to assume everyone's heard every previous episode. So if you buy that for a moment, then Moser's point is, when inflation started really picking up in the 70s amongst its influences or impacts was the fact that it was reducing the real value of that government debt, right? That the government debt was a certain dollar amount. That's how much it owed to the people holding the government securities, whether in the form of, you know, bills, notes, or bonds. And so as price inflation, especially to the extent that people weren't expecting it, Right, that people who had maybe lent money to the government in 1970, you know, someone who bought 30-year treasuries in 1970, they probably weren't expecting the rates of price inflation that we saw in 1978, 79. And so the interest returned, you know, the yield on those 30-year treasuries in retrospect was not as much as they thought it was going to be in real terms. Okay, so – there's a sense in which it's, – it's just kind of the accounting flip side. People will cynically say, oh, yeah, the government likes to run – let the inflation rip because it reduces the value of its debt. It can pay back the debt in, in, in weaker dollars. That's a way of thinking about it. Okay, So Mosler is making the simple point that, oh, the reason the economy collapsed or you know had a bad recession in the early 80s was because the er- erosion of all that government debt in the 70s – meant that a big chunk of private sector wealth just got eroded. And so that's what happened. Okay, so let me 
first just hit that claim from a theoretical point of view. I just want to make some observations before we start looking at the numbers, the, the, the history, but just from a theoretical perspective. Okay, so first of all, even on its own terms, other things equal, if the public believes they're poorer, why would that cause a recession? Right? If you're a household and you know you think you have a certain amount in savings, you know, you have assets and whatever, you've got your checking account balance, you've got some stocks, you've got some real estate, maybe you got life insurance policies in force, whatnot, some maybe some bonds. Okay, you got some Bitcoin. And then you wake up one day and the stock market has gone down. The the real estate that you thought you owned in Florida, you know, that's collapsed in value. Bitcoin's crashed and so on. Are you going to now go quit your job? Are you going to call up your boss and say, hey, can I cut my hours? Probably not, right? If anything, you're going to go take a second job. Or if there's somebody in your household who hasn't been working, maybe you're going to encourage that person, hey, uh, we're a lot poorer than we thought we were last week. So we need more income. So start looking around. See if you see if you can start doing something to bring in some more income because uh, we're not in good shape compared to what we thought a week ago, given all this news that just hit. Right? So if that's true for the household, it's also true for 100 million people. That in general, if the public learns that they're poorer than they thought they were, that would make them want to work more. Okay, so – and I know this is very standard, not just among MMTers, but Keynesians and even you know man on the street kind of thing to explain recessions as a collapse in asset values. Like even, you know, oh, what happened in 2008? Oh, Wall Street collapsed and things collapsed and there was a financial crisis and that's why the recession happened. But again, just strictly speaking, for, you know, imagine for a moment you didn't know anything about advanced economics. On its own, that's a weird thing to say, isn't it? That people, Americans in this case, learned they were poorer than they previously thought, and so that's why they stopped producing as much. You would think, if anything, that would explain a burst in economic activity. Okay? And so what's happening is from a Keynesian slash MMT perspective, they think it's spending that drives growth, at least in, uh, under many circumstances. And so from their point of view, what happens when households realize they're poorer than they thought they were before is the way to compensate. Yes, they might try to work more, but the immediate thing they're going to do is cut consumption spending. Right? They're going to try to save more, and that's the way they're going to try to replenish their, their wealth you know, so to build it up more rapidly because when they realize, oh, geez, we're not where we thought we were with our financial plan. And so from a Keynesian slash MMT perspective, uh-oh, if households collectively try to cut back, try to save more, the so-called paradox of thrift kicks in and um, that reduces income, right? Because if a household says, oh, geez, we, we were sitting on all these government bonds either directly or through our mutual fund or whatever – and now because inflation, you know, the year right now is 1979 and geez, look at prices, what they're doing. We still have this amount sitting in our portfolios or our account with the mutual fund. But bread and gasoline are a lot more now than we thought they were going to be 10 years ago when we made these plans. And so, yeah, we can try to work more, but maybe I can't just 
increase my employment. And so what do we do? Let's stop going out to eat as much. But if every household's doing that, now the restaurant sector gets crushed and they start laying workers off. And now those workers aren't buying as much stuff. And then it's a vicious spiral and unemployment shoots up, right? So that's the Keynesian story of how a drop in wealth leads to a recession in real terms. All right. Um, I don't want to get too far afield right now. In the Austrian view, that's not exactly what happens, right? In the Austrian story, people saving more is actually what you want them to do. And that prices are flexible, especially if the government and the central bank take their hands off. And especially also if the government doesn't give special legal privileges to unions to be able to crack skulls if someone crosses a picket line and whatever, so that you know wages are more flexible than they would be in a regime where the government gives privileges to unions, that the market can handle changes in spending patterns pretty easily, pretty nimbly, and that you don't have a recession for two or three years in a row just because, oh, people tried to save too much. Like, no, that's crazy from an Austrian perspective. But put that aside. I don't, this episode's not so much spelling out the Austrian alternative. Another problem with, again, just thinking through it theoretically with Mosler's story is that and, – and we had a previous episode on this uh, that we'll link to in the show notes page, folks. But in case you missed that, I'll give the real quick version. I challenge the notion or the relevance at least of the claim that government bonds represent wealth to the financials, to the private sector. Okay, so the logic again is just draw a circle around the private sector and how can they collectively gain in assets on net? And the idea is, oh, if a household buys a corporate bond, then the household's net wealth has gone up, net assets have gone up, but now the corporation is in debt more by the exact same dollar amount. So on net, the household plus that corporation their net assets haven't gone up. So the only way the claim goes that the private sector as a whole can gain in financial wealth or assets, I should say, is if the government goes deeper into debt and then the private sector is holding government bonds, which are not claims on anyone in the private sector. So that's the idea. And so Mosler is saying when inflation was eroding the value of the outstanding government debt held by the public, that's what caused, you know, because of their drop in real wealth, they'd stop spending as much. And that's what tipped the economy into recession in the, in the early 80s. But again, I want to challenge that notion that government bonds held by the public should in any sense be considered a net financial asset. Because where, how is the government coming up with the means to pay them? So if it's through taxation, that's clearly not helping the economy as a whole. If the government, you know, let's say the public's holding a trillion dollars in government bonds. And if the government pays that off by taxing a trillion out of the public's hands, handing it right back to them and then extinguishing the bonds, the public's not any better off from that. If they just roll over the debt, that's not really making them wealthier either. And then even if they just run the printing press, again, yeah, you're getting a trillion dollars in cash, but if it's kind of spread around the whole system – that mostly just makes prices go up. It's not that farmland is more arable now. It's not that there's more factories. It's not that workers now have more skills. There's not more brain surgeons walking around because the government just printed up a trillion dollars and gave it to people. That doesn't actually increase real output. And so in what sense does it work to say the private sector is holding a trillion dollars in net financial assets if the government 
lends, you know, borrows a trillion from them and lets them hold those bonds. Incidentally, very quickly, you might say, okay, but couldn't you say that for anything? No, there's a fundamental difference. If a private company issues bonds in a household, you know, views, oh, I have a bond issued by Google. This is net wealth to me. That's not a mere uh, trickery that how does the private company pay that off? They provide goods and services to their customers that are valued above the resources used in producing them. That's how a private company pays off its own bondholders. It goes and creates value, loosely speaking. So it's it's not wrong to look at, to add up the you know the bonds held by the public and view those as wealth somehow. Uh, that the corporation, yes, the corporations have liabilities, and we can't just throw that out. But my point is, it if you're looking at a group of people and they're holding a trillion dollars in bonds issued by companies that are still going operations, that community is in much better shape than if they hold a trillion dollars in bonds issued by this organization that has a bunch of guys with guns and cages. And the way they're going to pay those off is either running a printing press or sticking guns in people's faces and saying, give us the money so we can pay off these bonds. That those are just different things entirely. And it's crazy to me that the MMT people focus only on the government bonds as being, in a sense, net wealth to the private sector. Okay, but let's switch now to the um, this chart here I'm looking at, the, the actual history. So this is gross federal debt divided by the consumer price index. So what I'm doing here is looking at uh, ideally, I would have been able to get public debt held by the public or sorry, gross federal debt held by the public. But th that series, for whatever reason, on Fred didn't go back far enough. So in order for me to get something that went back um, before the 60s, this one starts in 1947. Um, I had to use just gross federal debt. So this includes stuff like the Social Security Trust Fund and that the Federal Reserve is holding bonds that the government issued, that's all being rolled in here, but this is as good as I could do. So you can see here, um, Mosler's story, this is where he's talking about, right? So here's 1978. So you can see the, the debt went up, even adjusting for you know the real federal debt, let's call it. And then it, it came down in the late 70s. These are annual averages as price inflation really skyrocketed. You know, the price inflation was higher than the deficit, loosely speaking. So that's why the value of the federal debt fell. And he's saying that's what, what explains these bad recessions that happened in the early 1980s here and here. Okay. And if you look earlier in history, yeah, this story is roughly consistent that, oh, the federal debt after World War II came down a little bit and then there was this recession. It came down in the 50s. So there was this recession. It came down again in the later in the 50s. There was a recession. Okay. And then it kind of stayed the same, bounced up, you know, and there was no recession in the 60s. And then oh, it came down again in the late 60s and there was a recession. And then it came down again in the mid... Right? So it looks kind of consistent with the story. But if I move the uh, cursor here to the right and we zoom out more, I'm going to leave the COVID one off because that's, you know, both sides could quibble about that one. It's, it fits my version of events, but it's I, I won't hold that against Moser because that's kind of a weird recession. But you can see, okay, the, the value of the federal debt, even in real terms, went up throughout the 80s. So why was there a recession right here? That shouldn't have happened, according to Moser's story. 
they like to cite the one in the late 90s. Okay, so you could explain this one, right? There, there were budget surpluses in the latter years of the Clinton administration. Okay, but then what about this one? The debt went up in real terms, and yet we had the financial crisis that led to the so-called Great Recession. Okay, so my point is Moser is not correct when he says that, oh, yeah, every time there's been a recession, there's been a retrenchment in economic terms. Okay, also, um, I have a good counterexample in the case of Canada. So I'll link to this, of course, in the um, show notes page, folks. But this is an article I wrote uh, for the website EconLib. And let me just read a little bit from this. So what happened was in the 19, early 1990s, Canada was in serious trouble that they had run decades plus of consistent budget deficits. Their debt had mushroomed and they were in danger of you know, their, their bonds and currency being called into question like this is being discussed in the Wall Street Journal. And so what happened is they took a hardline approach and drastically turned around their fiscal position. So let me just read you um, some excerpts from my article here. Yet the Canadians swiftly solved the crisis with serious reforms. In just two years, from 1995 to 1997, total federal government spending fell by more than 7%. Okay, so be clear, folks. I'm not talking about a slowdown in the rate of growth. I'm saying the absolute level of Canadian federal spending over a two-year period dropped 7%. Okay, so that's, that's a big shift in modern terms for a government to literally reduce its spending in absolute terms. And then the budget deficit started out at $32 billion, or 4% of GDP. And then from 95 to 97, it turned into a $2.5 billion surplus. Now, there were some tax increases, but the ratio of spending cuts to tax increases was about five to one. Okay, so the way they largely achieved this fiscal turnaround was by cutting spending, not so much by raising taxes. Canada's federal government then ran 11 consecutive budget surpluses, right? 11 years in a row, their budget was in surplus, which caused the debt to GDP ratio to plummet from 78% in 1996 to 39% in 2007. So with this record, you would have thought if the Keynesians or MMTers are right, Canada should have been plunged into the worst recession since the Great Depression. But is that what happened? No, this is me now. In the decade after reform, Canada outperformed all the other G7 nations on economic growth, investment, and job creation. According to IMF data, from 96 to 2005, Canada's average growth of real GDP was 3.3%, while the U.S. was runner-up with 3.2% average growth. Even in the short term, Canada's dramatic spending cuts and moderate tax increases in the mid-90s had only mild side effects, causing only a temporary uptick in the unemployment rate. And just to double-check myself, I switched and looked. You guys can see it here if you're looking on the YouTube version of this uh, episode. Canadian recession since 29. You can see the history. And you'll notice you know, that there was one that began in 1981, and there was one that began in 1990, and then the next one was the Great Recession that began in October of 2008. So notice there is no Canadian recession in the history books that happened at the end of the 90s or the early 2000s, which is all the more impressive because the U.S. had the dot-com crash in that same time frame. So even if Canada had gone into recession, you know, I could have plausibly argued that wasn't the fault of this budget surplus. It was because the U.S. You know, had a recession and pulled the Canadians down with it. 
but I don't have to come up with excuses. Canada did not go into recession, even though it had that dramatic budget turnaround. Okay, so there's, you know, this is a clear-cut example where the authorities did exactly what the Keynesians and Warren Mosler in the MMT camp are saying is the wrong thing to do. According to their logic, there should have been a huge recession in Canada, and there wasn't. Now, incidentally, if you're curious, the way I know how Krugman gets out of this, when people were arguing um, after the financial crisis, there was a a dispute about so-called fiscal austerity that was going around. And um, I think it was the World Bank, actually, believe it or not, came out with a study showing historical examples of so-called expansionary austerity, where governments and, – and they even said this in the report – that if they um, cut spending as a way to get their fiscal house in order rather than raising taxes, that that in many cases was associated with strong economic performance, that it didn't plunge the, the country into a recession, even though that would be standard you know, dogma among Keynesians. And so then Krugman would, would go through and, and all the historical cases they gave of when this happened, you know, when a country was in a tight pinch – it was running up a lot of red ink and it just cut spending in order to you know, reduce its deficit or even to run surpluses and kind of dig out of the hole fiscally. And they didn't have a, they didn't have a recession. And Krugman for each one of those would come up with some explanation as to, oh, that doesn't count. That's not relevant to us now. And so for the Canadian example, Krugman didn't deny the numbers. But what he said was, oh, well, they increased their net exports. And, and that's how you know, the Canadian economy didn't collapse even though they switched and began running huge budget surpluses. And that's not available to Earth as a whole. It's not that governments around the world following the financial crisis could all just rely on increasing net exports because we can't all net export to each other. It's not like we can't, you know, we can export to Mars or something. And so that doesn't count. But that's not the point. The point is Canada did what ostensibly should have been impossible. All right. So, and also... Just notice the, the pattern here. There's all these historical examples of governments engaging in fiscal austerity and not having an economic problem. In contrast, there does not exist a single clean example of a government running up massive budget deficits and then having good economic growth. Right. For example, people point to the financial crisis and they say, oh, it's a good thing that uh, the government – Ran, you know, under Obama, ran up a huge budget deficit, increased the debt, and that Bernanke, you know, slashed interest rates and allowed for the massive QE because um, otherwise we would have had Great Depression 2.0. Nobody's saying that the economy was good in 2009 or 2010. They're just saying it would have been even worse. The economy was awful, though, in those periods, right? And so you say, why? And they say, oh, it's because, you know, Ron Paul scared people and they didn't do enough. And that's the pattern for all the alleged success stories is that they'll say, oh, they didn't do enough. Or they'll point to World War II as a, as a classic example of Keynesian pump priming. But no, people on the home front in 1942 were not living large. There was rationing in place. It was privation, right? Hey, there's a war on. Okay, so it's not that the economy looked great in 1942, all right. And again, we can explain it, and the Keynesians do. And they say, well, it's because, you know, what resources were getting diverted into making tanks and bombs and stuff. Okay, fine. But my point, again, stands is 
the Keynesians do not have a single good example to point to of their policies actually working. In contrast, the Austerians, the people who favor fiscal austerity, have plenty of historical examples, not just the Canadian one that I walked you through here, but plenty of other examples to point to to say, yep, there was this country, they, their government ran up the debt, it was getting out of hand, you know, interest payments were consuming a larger fraction of their GDP year after year, and so they cut spending, got it under control, ran surpluses in some cases, and grew out of it, and nothing bad happened. You know, they didn't, have, they didn't even have a recession. And the Keynesians can come up with, you know, excuses for why, oh, those don't count. But, you know, what would the world look like if the Keynesians and MMTers were just flat out wrong? I think it would look like this world, where their medicine always goes hand in hand with a sick patient. And they always just say, well, we didn't give them enough of the medicine. And there's plenty of cases where people did the opposite, to, you know, took the, to, took the opposite of their medicine and got better. And they all say, well, they just got lucky that, you know, what they did actually made things worse. But the patient was, you know, naturally robust or something. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Okay, let's now turn to a final clip, and here is where um, Mosler gets into the central claim of this you know, podcast episode that he's been on. So we'll go ahead and play that. Yeah, so I'm seeing, yeah, overall it's up 6%. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty, yeah, r- real personal income, you're, you're right, is actually slightly negative. And yet, so how, how is it that we have this boom? Well, it, it's growing, okay? And it, you know, and we don't have, we don't have like a five or 6% GDP, but we've got one or two. Right. And um, you've got, um, during COVID, people's, um, what we call savings was actually, they didn't borrow credit cards and whatnot were run down. So debt service is extremely low. People are in a position to leverage. And, a lot of this boom is by higher income people whose whose income has kept way up because they're getting a trillion and a quarter of interest income. So Rolls Royce sales are sold out for the next four years at four hundred and twenty five thousand dollars a car, <laughs> and you know now we're seeing people at the lower end are, are getting squeezed. They're not keeping up with inflation. So we've had a a big shift, uh, you know, in terms of distribution of consumption underway. With these, in, with these interest rate increases. With a zero rate policy, we actually saw a distribution of consumption starting to, you know, it, it stopped going the wrong way, maybe went the right way a little bit. I haven't seen any real good numbers on it. But now that the interest rates are back up and the higher income groups are just getting free money, it, it, you're seeing it start go the other way. Uh, right. But you, you said that so yeah, people didn't borrow m- money in 2020 and 2021. I, I, I think that is because they had XX savings. Like if Bank of America put out, if, if you know, someone had $500 in their bank account in 2019, they now have $3,000. I mean, that, I, I think people's savings account you know, went up by a lot. And but when I say boom, I was referring to 2021 uh, that, that time. I, I personally am not a belief that we are in a boom now. But it is objectively true that the recession fears of last year, uh, did not, it's, the economy is not as bad as people thought. The deficit got up to 15% of GDP during COVID. Okay, and then it collapsed to like four. And that's when everything went down. We had two negative quarters last year. And I know it's inventories and whatnot, but I want to just gloss over that without getting too detailed. But it was still down. And I thought it was going to keep going down. And then they started raising rates and started pushing the deficit back up. It's like, okay, now we've got a new fiscal cycle proactively going the other way. And so the, the rate hikes kind of saved us from the recession that was happening. 
because of the collapse in deficit spending. And if you look at what inflation was doing, the collapse in this real savings. But then it turned around and went back up from the interest expense, government interest expense, you know, deficit spending, plus uh, increases on Social Security, 8.9% or something, plus all the military spending. Okay, so we had all kinds of fiscal spending kick in to reverse that decline in the deficit and cause it to proactively go up. It's because not a lot of those things were pegged to inflation, right? Yeah, yeah, they, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And military spending is all pegged to inflation. You know, they, they're going to buy a certain number of bombs, whatever, no matter what they cost. And so, Warren, g- given that your framework, MMT, places the government at the center of, of all sort of monetary op- operations, I want to ask you about the, the reason. Yeah, it's a public, the, the, the currency itself is a public monopoly. Yeah. So it has to be at the center. It's, it's, it's based on coercive taxation and which is government and the private sector has enough has to comply. Yeah, I, so, I knew when I was saying it that I was not going far enough. It's it's not only the center; it, it is the, ent- the entire map. What about banks? Which yes, they are regularly yeah. chartered, but when uh, you know a bank, let's say JB Morgan, wants to make a car loan, when interest uh, when, when interest rates are a lot higher, people are not going to want to uh, borrow as much and. People who are borrowing money to finance uh, their their lives and their livelihood, they're going to pay a lot more. As well as, by the way, uh, very wealthy people are not the they're not you know exclusively savers. A lot of very wealthy people are very much in debt, and they they borrow a vast amount of money to finance their yeah. private equity, real estate, and stuff like that. So uh, there's winners and losers, but overall, the total deficit's looking at I don't know 1.8 trillion for the year. Somebody's getting that money. Okay, and and the, the winners are getting 1.8 trillion more than the losers are losing. <laughs> it's it's a lot, and so car sales have gone up, even though rates have gone up. Housing, I'm not calling this, but it looks like housing may have bottomed November, December. Sales starting to pick up a little bit. That's the one area that you thought would have collapsed. Housing prices are like flat year over year. I think they were up 0.7 in one index and down 0.4 in another. But basically, that's you know after. It's, shooting up as much as they did to just go flat. That's not much of a collapse, right? And it's because we're flooding the economy with money for interest expense and military and social security. But the interest expense is, you know, one and a half times larger than the military. It's the largest single expense out there. And it's not getting any credit for running up the deficit and supporting the economy. Zero. I mean, have you heard any other economists point to the interest expense as one of the reasons the economy is doing well? I I haven't. Okay, so again, there you have it, consistent with his earlier views, but just to spell it, Moser's logic, the idea is because um, don't listen to the conventional wisdom that says, oh, hiking interest rates slows growth, tips the economy into recession. That's not what happens in reality, at least when you're in a situation like the U.S. is right now where the public – where the debt held by the public is a large share of, of GDP, in this case over 100 percent now. When you're raising interest rates, that increases the interest payment to the public, and so that's like a huge form of stimulus. And so that's why the economy didn't fall into recession. That's why you see inflationary pressures still building. And if the Fed continued to hike rates foolishly thinking that's how they were going to break the back of inflation, no, that would actually fuel more inflation, right? And that's that's why the actual title of the episode of the podcast that Moser was just on is to say that, um, you know, rate hikes are causing inflation, even though that's counterintuitive. Okay. So let's go ahead and, and 
Well, well, let me just first mention this. Okay, so from a theoretical point of view, what's my problem with that? Just the very basic terms, the MMTers, they have this tendency to, they say, oh, government spending other things equal adds money slash wealth to the private sector, so it's expansionary. Taxes sucks it away, and bonds suck it away. You know, like issuing bonds pulls you know money out, but it's it's somewhat of a of a wash there, and so that's why they think other things equal, like the government running. Let's say the government taxes a trillion dollars and spends one point five trillion. So loosely speaking, from the MMT perspective, the taxing of the trillion pulls a trillion out of the private sector, but the spending of the one point five adds one point five. So on net, five hundred billion has been added. And then if you want to look at terms of like the money flows, well, them, um, the, the money stayed the same, right? Like if they, they took a trillion in taxes, spent the trillion, and then they issued $500 billion in bonds. And so now the public's holding the $500 billion in treasury securities, but then the money they raised also got spent because expenditures were $1.5 trillion, right? So all the money either to pay taxes or to buy bonds – was ultimately recycled back into the private sector hands because of the $1.5 trillion in spending. And now the public not only has the money it started out with, but it also has an extra $500 billion. Okay, so again, I've already explained earlier in this episode why I don't think giving the public more treasury securities is actually giving them net wealth in any economically relevant sense. Now, what is true is depending on how the Fed conducts itself – Government deficit spending can go hand in hand with more money creation, but it doesn't need to. And so this is partly, again, where I, I disagree with the MMT framework is uh, depending on what you read, they make it sound like government deficit spending per se is adding money to the economy when no, it doesn't. Just like if Google runs a deficit, you know, maybe because they're building factories or something, that's not creating more money. Right. And so if if we were on a classical gold standard, for example, like hardcore and, the, and there was no Federal Reserve, the Treasury can still issue bonds and raise funds that way. And so the government can still spend more than tax receipts in a given accounting period. There's nothing stopping it from doing that. And yet it's not creating more gold coins by that operation. And the same is true nowadays, even with fiat money, that a government deficit per se does not create more dollars. Again, it could if the Fed essentially is monetizing the debt, but that's a decision that the Fed makes separate from, at least mechanically, the decision of the government or the Treasury to run a deficit. So anyway, we can go and look to sort of test Mosler's story. So here, this is the Fed's balance sheet, and you can see it was increasing, and then it leveled off in April 2022, and then it started dropping. All right, so... If Mosler is saying that the Fed was helping to, you know, ex- ex- expand or was was stimulating the economy in that period, no, it wasn't. It was it was pulling reserves out of the system. Now there was this spike up in March of twenty three. Presumably that was because of you know the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and, and related ones, and so the Fed came in with its new operations there. But even there, it's been falling since then. Okay, so right now you can see the level of the Fed's holdings is lower now than it was, you know, going back to December of 22. 
if we look at M2, right, the, the money stock of M2 measure, you can see that's way down, right? So from, again, mid is April 2022, it leveled off, and then it's come down since then pretty steadily. All right, so to say the government's interest payments are pumping extra money into the economy, not according to measures of the monetary base and not according to M2. Now, let me look at um, Mosler's just his big picture claim, the idea that the federal government's deficit either supports the economy or not. So it's true if we're looking at it just in, in relatively recent terms that, yeah, so this chart right here, this just goes back to 2010. And so you can see here that um, – and I, I, for those just who are w listening to the audio, I apologize here. I'll try to g give you some guidance. But I'm looking at a chart of the federal surplus or deficit in monetary terms, like actual dollars. And it wasn't – you know, it bounced around uh, between zero and a, about $150 billion deficit um, from 2010 onward. And this was the quarterly average. And then it dropped way down. Huge deficit, of course, in second quarter of 2020 when COVID struck. And then it rebounded. And then it has sunk down again in recent terms that it's between two and 300 billion deficits quarterly um, just you know in recent vintage. Okay, so he is right. Mosler is correct that the um, the deficit in monetary terms did mushroom recently, presumably because, as for the reason he says, as interest rates went up, the Federal Reserve or sorry, the Treasury's interest expense went up, and they didn't slash other spending accordingly. But then for him to say, and his story fits, you know, the the data fit his interpretation. I don't. I think that's that's wrong. If you take a broader view, right? If I look at federal surplus or deficit as a percent of gross domestic product, okay, and looking throughout history, U.S. history, then I don't see how this story fits the facts at all, right? So, for example, after World War II, you can see there was a huge deficit in 30, uh, 43 and forty four, and then it switched to a big surplus by nineteen forty eight. Okay, so it was the federal deficit, not the debt. The deficit was something like 27% of GDP in 1943. And then by 48, there was a surplus of 4.3% of GDP. So that's probably the biggest swing in U.S. history. You know, maybe during the Civil War or something, it would, or World War I, it was cool, but I, I don't think so. I think that was the single biggest swing in U.S. history. So you would think the worst depression in U.S. history must have been in between then. And you can see that yeah, there is a technical recession here between 45 and 46. But do we read about that in the history books about how millions were out of work because of, you know, the demobilization? No, you don't talk about that because it was very rapid. Troops came home. Maybe they were temporarily out of work as they transitioned. The private sector boomed in this period as, as the government released resources from the war sector back into the private sector. So the growth in private sector GDP was enormous in this period, as Bob Higgs has demonstrated. All right. So to say switching from deficit spending to surpluses hurts the economy, makes economic growth sluggish, this should have been awful. 
Okay, and we can also um, look at it the other way too. If you look at you know the experience of the seventies, it's not obvious why there should have been a problem. That you know here we have a quote healthy amount of deficits. Same thing throughout the eighties. So here's another sort of counterexample to Moser's claim that you can see. Uh, again, if you're able to look at the charts along with me here, the federal deficit, again, is a share of the economy. It went – the smallest it was was 2.7% of GDP in 1989 and then it was falling and yet we had a recession in the early 90s. So according to Mosler's theory, why is that happening? You wouldn't have expected that to happen. The deficit was getting worse. According to him, you know, we should have had a good economy. All right. So with all this stuff, my I guess my point is you can sit there and tell a story to make the facts you know, fit. And once you see what the graph looks like, you can come up with a story and say, oh, well, there's this wiggle room. And, you know, the line, and if you start doing epicycles and saying, well, it's maybe the change in the direction of this thing and it used to be falling and now it's rising. But I, I would just say if you're grappling with an MMT person, just force them to be specific. They They can't be allowed to say – Oh, if the if the fiscal deficit is big, then that can explain a good economy. But even if it, but then if it just starts shrinking, but it's still really big, and the economy flips, then well, it's because of the shrinking. You know, you can't give them the first, second, and third derivatives because with that much leeway, you can look at a chart and tell any story you want. And anyway, putting all that aside, go look at the Canadian story. There is no way looking at the chart of Canadian budget deficits that then switch to eleven consecutive budget surpluses. And how its federal debt started out at a big chunk of the GDP and then shrunk, I think, by over, you know, two-thirds, something like that. There's no way you can spin that as that wasn't a massive move towards fiscal austerity and a reduction in the, the federal debt in any according to any metric you want. And yet they didn't even have a technical recession. They didn't have recession at all. They had they outperformed the G seven countries. So um both theoretically and empirically, just when the MMT people casually talk about how, oh yeah, all these all these major recessions can be explained by a move towards fiscal austerity, that that no that that doesn't make sense. And again, the case of World War II, according to their framework, nineteen forty six and forty seven and forty eight should have been the worst economy in the history of the country, and yet yeah, there was technically a recession, but it was over very quickly and. We, you know, we don't even talk about that. That's not that's not even a blip in the history books. Okay, well, that's a good place to wrap up. Thank you, everyone, for your attention. I hope that some of you benefited from this deep dive into the world of MMT. And I'll see you next time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.